Over the last two decades, I've been in an insatiable quest to learn everything I can about leadership. What makes the best leaders so good? After running companies small and large over the last 20 years, today, I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo. I'm your host, and I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this very topic and what makes the best leader so good. Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, Tomorrow's Leaders. So today I've got President and CEO of History Associates Incorporated, Beth Mazur. And here's what's cool. I learned new stuff every day. What I didn't know is there are companies out there that help companies kind of capture their whole history and tell their story. You know, when you, I, I, if you join a new company, you need to understand the background of the company and, and that's what they do. They, you know, you see the companies that have the big wall of all their history of, you know, Coca-Cola that has a museum of all their, you know, where, where they were, where they came to. That's what they do. It's really, really cool stuff. But we talked also about leadership, all the different elements of building an organization that's, uh, diverse, that's attracting the right people, that's growing, uh, that's really bringing people together in this type of environment. Really, really cool stuff. Very candid, frank conversation. I think you're really going to like it. So here is Beth Mazur. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. I am here with Beth Mazur, president and CEO of HAI. Beth, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I am fascinated by what you do in our conversations beforehand and my research, learning about you. It was kind of this eye-opening thing. I didn't even realize this existed, but explain to the audience what HAI is and what you actually do. Sure. Um, A lot of people don't understand what we do. We're a professional history consulting firm, and history can be something that happened 200 years ago or an hour ago. Um, We have three different divisions of the company. We deal with archiving and collections management, um, exhibits and interpretive planning for museums and corporations. And also we have a large um, litigation support arm that provides expert witness services and investigative litigation to um, most of the major law firms in the country. That's that's diverse. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, a lot of stuff. Yeah. So and what what is so so if I'm understanding right, I mean, there's and you're right, there's so much to history and when companies have been around or organizations for years and years and years, it is so I know in, in my work that I do with, with leadership consulting, there's so much importance on people understanding the background and the history. So is that right? Am I understanding you're kind of bringing that to life and helping make making sure you preserve and, and and make sure that people are understanding and have a good way to understand and piece together the history of an organization? True. And if you think about it, it comes in different flavors, right? If you've got a merger and acquisition, you know, the bottom line is driving the merger, but are there legacy liabilities that they're going to uncover that they didn't know about later that it leads to litigation, insurance claims, um, you know, super fund issues. You've got that. And then you've got legacy brands, you know, like Coke or Ford Motors, other companies that, you know, have archivists on site full time, but may need help telling the brand story. Because think about that ad with Mean Joe Green, right? That invokes such nostalgia. And you've got companies that have assets like that that never bring them to the forefront. You know, I saw your face when I mentioned that ad, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So 
it's crazy that companies, a lot of companies may not realize that they have those emotion evoking pieces in their archives that they can use to drive the brand forward, to tell a story, or even we work with national parks and we've got interpretive planning services that try to map out the story of the national park. You know, you're walking through and you find the the marker and you're like on this spot, so-and-so, and this happened, or, you know, you're looking at a view of a 500 year old tree. It's the first one and it's, you know, of its kind, blah, blah, blah. Um, we do all that type of work. And it's really cool that, you know, we're a small company, but we've told thousands of stories and, you know, we keep wanting to tell more. I love that. What's some of the coolest stuff that you've worked on and that you've done? Um, we've been involved with the National World War II Museum curating content and licensing images for their Road to Berlin, Road to Tokyo, um, home front exhibits there, um, the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. We've been involved there. Almost every national park we've been involved with, um, from telling their story to charting you know, your visit journey through the park or even arranging the archives. Did you know that every national park pretty much has an archival collection? No, no, <laughs> I didn't see I'm learning more stuff every time I talk to you. So, yeah. So, and what is, what is the, so things so like, I think about a company that's been around like Coca-Cola for years and years and years and years. And is it when you see something, which I haven't been there, but I understand there's a really cool, you know, display of all their history and everything and the Coke cans and the bottles and everything like that. That's the type of stuff that you produce for a company where you put that all together and create that? Well, we don't per se, you know, fabricate the exhibits, but we can provide the content for the exhibits. We work with partners that can. So mm -hmm. a lot of the work takes some of our vision and they can bring it to life in the world. I think it's the world of Coke. I think that it's in its second incarnation. I could be wrong, mm. but um, there are, you know, museum companies that spe specialize in building those exhibits, but we contribute to that. A lot of times we are subcontractors on projects such as that, that one. Um, I don't think we worked on world of Coke, but. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Well, it. bottom line is, you know, and I, I think that, and this is a great segue into leadership. I think about people that are joining an organization, new organization. I've been there before. I've joined different organizations where it took me a long time to understand the background and the history. It's so important for people coming in to understand the culture, but also what kind of led to that culture? What, the, what things people have been through and experienced and how did that brand get created? Mm -hmm. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the leadership aspect of that, because I know that's really critical. I know that's something that you recognize is important. Um, how, how do you do that when you as you're built, been building your organization, you bring people in? I mean, how do you give them kind of a really good idea of what the organization is all about, the culture and and how they can really succeed as effectively as they can in the organization? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think history is not used enough in the onboarding process. I, I think most people, when they come on board a company, they might get a sheet or two that might have some milestones. I know the poster behind me is something that we did for 
Texaco that map the history. Clearly, Texaco, you know, doesn't exist as Texaco any longer. But, you know, something like that, you can just see and just appreciate the just the genius of what a company has done, some milestones that they've hit, you know, first to market, whatever. But then they come, especially if they come to HAI, we try to steep them in the history of this company. Because I know this company was formed by four historians that wrote the history of the three mile, the five mile island, three mile island accident. And uh, they wrote the book for Department of Energy. So that's how um, HAI got started. So it was just kind of like a fluke, but then they realized this could be a business. And I think it's really an important tool. And, you know, history is cyclical. Things keep happening again. Things that you say, oh, you know, never again. It won't happen again. But, you know, look at today. Things are happening again. And just from, you know, a lot of people just don't learn Mm -hmm. from history. And we try to keep telling the stories. So hopefully we can change course. And you were sharing earlier, kind of a cool thing of how you got intrigued about industry. Somebody who had an effect on you, I think it was your teacher. What, what, what was that story? Um, you know, I fell into history. Literally, I didn't get into the business school in college. So I was sitting in a class and one of my professors, his name was Ivor Bernstein. He jumped on a desk and started singing a civil, a civil war him. And I was like, all right, history seems like a decent major. I will, I'll go that route. And little did I know that it was literally going to become the building block for my entire career. That's amazing. It's a great leadership lesson in that. I mean, I think leaders that make things interesting and fun, uh, they draw people in, you know, I mean, he, he, he or she was a leader or he, you said was a leader in your life in that instant and steered you into a direction that you might not have otherwise have gone. Maybe you would have found it eventually. I don't, I honestly, John, I don't know if I would have found it eventually, but you know, it kind of set the stage. And then I was like graduate school. What should I, what should I do? So then I came to DC for graduate school in history and you know, most people were like, or what are you going to do? Teach. And I didn't want to teach. I came from a family owned business. I always was very entrepreneurial and uh, I happened to walk into my advisor's office and he had just gotten a call about a potential internship um, that I was about to take another one. But I said, I'll go talk to um, that firm. Turns out that firm was a public history consulting firm, very similar to HAI, but maybe a little bit more litigation focused. Um, So I worked there for a few years and that was the start of my career. And, you know, fast forward 30 years later, um, my mentor there and first boss, Shelly Bookspan, is now one of our principal consultants here at HAI and on our board of directors. So, you know, the universe of professional historical consulting is very small, as you can see by that example alone. Yeah, well, it's amazing, too, and how important it is uh, to build networks and build relationships. And, and uh, you know, every industry, although it may be big and in some cases huge, it's still small circles, relatively small circles. So um, mm-hmm. that's so important that you, that you do that. I think you recognize that of how important those connections and networking is. 
Yeah, I think keeping keeping your networks, always be building your network and, you know, give back. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I try to I try to mentor, um, you know, undergrads and grad students that want careers in history that are not, you know, in a in a school library, in a government organization and just try to even advocate for a career in consulting because history and consulting generally don't end up in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't understand that you can make a career as a as a historian in a consulting firm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, I think this is interesting too, the, the whole concept of new business development or client acquisition and retention. I think that's an interesting concept for business leaders. And you're in a very unique industry. Um, but I also know it's much different the way that you might approach a law firm versus uh, the Smithsonian or another institute. How do mm-hmm. you, what's your thoughts on that? How do you adapt? How important is it to adapt to your your audience, so to speak? Well, it, it is difficult. I think, you know, customer acquisition cost is an issue, you know, industry agnostically, right? So you, how we would sell a legal project here is is much different because it's, you're dealing with ethics, you're dealing with confidentiality and we have to really understand the business and sell, you know, truly our skills, where we've been, what we've what we've done. So that is a totally different of consultative sale than say, you know, I've got an archival collection that needs to be processed. You know, we've got several clients that understand the value of history and they have no no problem selling that project to their executives to get the to the, get the buy-in, you know, other clients, you know, unlike, I'm not unlike, but like other companies, you need to create demand. So it's a lot harder to sell maybe content for museums if we're not a prime or a sub versus, um, you know, we need a history book of 350 years of XYZ company. I just, it's, it takes a lot to get the messaging right. And we are really spending a lot of resources here to try to figure out how to better get our brand, mm-hmm. you know, at the forefront. So people know that we're a 42 year old company operating like a startup, basically. Well, it's interesting. And you say, you know, you made me think of something. I was uh, watching a video earlier today about and this is one of my favorite foods chilean sea bass and i just love it i love i love it. i could eat it every single day it's fantastic but it's interesting it was never popular back in the 70s when people found it or fishermen found it it was called the patagonia toothfish and it's just such an unappealing name but i think about like the difference the fish is the same the name has changed the image has changed and and people try it and all of a sudden it becomes this delicacy and it was the same thing they just figured out how to position it a little bit better and how to communicate it a little bit better sometimes the name does everything so it's interesting no it's very true i'm, I'm thinking brussels sprouts 
too. You know, <laughs> now it's like the shishi the thing to be eating. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. There's probably all kinds of things. Maybe lima beans. They could change the name of that to something a little bit more intriguing. Get, it, get me to eat them. Um, so you have bred, I think, an environment. I know you're working, you've worked very hard to breed an environment uh, that's that's very um, creative-based, that's really helping to pull people together. This is a really unique time. I know a lot of leaders are kind of struggling with, okay, how do I allow people in a in a in an environment where they're in all kinds of different places and different roles and, and um, different backgrounds and everything, how do I allow them to operate in the most creative way um, that, that works for them and helps bring out their best, but also in a way that really helps serve the organization well? Um, what's your thought on that? And how, what are some of the things that you're thinking about or you think about when you're trying to do that? That's a good question, John. I always said that it was, I was ever in this type of position. I think the the best lessons I've learned are what not to do. Um, I said to myself, if I'm ever in this position, I will not. There's a lesson that I will never do that to a staff, never micromanage. Um, when I did walk in here almost four years ago, it was a, definitely a very, it was a change management exercise. You know, so we've kind of pivoted from a history firm that kind of operated more like an academic history firm to a corporation. And we are, it's hard to get people motivated. It it took a little while to win over hearts and minds because we were moving at a much faster pace. I think that we did have some turnover, but we're at the point that we've created a very light, open culture here because we're dealing with creative people. We're also dealing with, you know, archivists and librarians that, you know, some may be introverted and, you know, prefer to not be client facing and just be worker bees. And we've got people that can manage the pro- the projects and be in front of a client. So you're dealing with a mix of personalities, which is not unlike any other business. And I think letting people be who they are um, you know, with some structure, with the the right management, but not micromanaging. I'd like to think that we've got a bunch of very, very smart people here that can, you know, fit client needs and deliver um, strong deliverables to our clients with, you know, the supervision that's required of them, sure, but not at a micro granular level, you know, I trust that these people are adults and, you know, until they prove me wrong, I'm going to not hover. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that we've had enough turn and now we've got a much stronger foundation and I'm the right people are in the right positions for us to grow because we've seen, you know, the pandemic almost finished us off. Um, like a, a lot of other companies, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners had the same challenges because, you know, you shut your business down, everybody scattered, but you still had work to do. So, you know, we've dealt with the shift to hybrid. We implemented, you know, my, my archivists were here during the pandemic. They, they came in um, because you can't take XYZ's collection home and work on it over your kitchen table and bring it, bring it back to the office. It couldn't leave leave the building right so we were like how can we 
at least to give them some of the benefit of being able to work from home when, you know, the other half of the company hasn't been here in two years, but you guys have continued to come in. So at no cost to the company, we implemented a 410 work week. So the archivists or people that were coming into the office religiously could, you know, have a three-day weekend every week. And, you know, that doesn't cost a company any money, but the benefit is huge. You can schedule all your appointments, get your, you know, or just hang out and read a book and not have to, you know, come into work. It's huge. My, my guess is most people have offered that would take that over, over a, uh, you know, uh, five day, eight hour week. Eight, yeah. Eight and week. it was, it was well received, but there are people, you know, even I've tried to take advantage of that, you know, even mm-hmm. if we're work half day Fridays, you know, I'm always on no matter what, anyway, it doesn't matter if I'm in the office or, mm-hmm. or away, even on vacation, I'll look at my email, but, mm-hmm. um, between that and, you know, there weren't that many people here. So we allowed dogs and it really, it, it worked out really well. And people are today, there are a ton of people in the office, which is great. Yeah. Well, I think about that, you know, you, the more you think as a leader, the more you think about how their work can really work in with their life and they have balance, whether it's bringing dogs to the office or working different uh, time frames and days and schedules. Uh, the more appreciative people are, but you know, the healthier they are outside of work, the healthier they are inside of work. And when you start to breed an environment where it's so rigorous and, uh, and, and doesn't give any flexibility and leave any room for outside interests or things that people want to do or need to do, then ultimately that's how you lose great people. Number one, and people aren't as productive. I'm sure those People on the 410 are, are more productive in a lot of ways and probably more so consistently than somebody that's not. Um, so it's interesting, interesting concept. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and how, you know, maybe you and I would look at something versus, you know, a new hire that this is their first job and what stresses them out versus, you know, mm-hmm. it probably some of the things that stress younger employees out may not even enter mm-hmm. my mind. So it's been very interesting figuring out how to deal with, mm-hmm. um, you know, people in their twenties, you know, it just goes the gamut because I would think each, each decade has a little, has differences in what's important to them and what may bother them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm interested. What, what does stress you? What does, what keeps you up at night? The pandemic kept me up at night for a long time. Um, you know, we benefited from a PPP loan, um, and that kept the doors open. And by chance, we launched a rebrand, rebranded website in March of 2020. Um, you know, unbeknownst, <laughs> who knew, right? Um, it saved us. We transitioned to, you know, more online marketing. We shifted how we did things. Um, I slept a lot better after utilization rates started going back up in early 21. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have to say there are certain things that might keep me up, but we've worked really hard um, to get to where we are. We're in a, a growth phase. I do worry about retention, um, you know, making the numbers for my board of directors, but, you know, we've had a couple of really good years and I think that we've um, shored up our foundation and, you know, we are solidly, you know, building 
the house on the foundation now. Um, you know, you never know what curveballs are coming down the pike. We're a consulting firm. So, you know, if my pipeline's a little low um, and I've got a lot of projects ending, you know, that's going to give me a little bit of stress and worry. But, you know, we're bringing on new resources and mm-hmm. we brought in a new sales head of sales and a new marketing manager and our pipeline is looking pretty good. And I think, you know, we just have to get out there more and pound the pavement and show the value of history. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of it and, uh, congrats on everything you're doing in a relatively short period of time and the success you're having. Um, it's, uh, it's very interesting. It's exciting. I know people will want to engage with you and check it out uh, as well. What's the best way for them to do that? You know, our website has a lot of great content and thought leadership. It's, you know, www.historyassociates.com. We've got a contact us form. You can find me fairly easily on LinkedIn and, you know, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Okay. Excellent. Terrific. Well, I appreciate you being with us today, Beth. This has been absolutely fantastic and interesting and appreciate your leadership insights as well. I know the audience does too. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate being asked. You got it. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. We've been here with Beth Mazur, who's the president and CEO of HAI. Be sure to check her out, but be sure to check out HAI. All the links are in the show notes. And as always, like, share, subscribe, go down below, give a five-star review, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader for suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching. Reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P dot com. Thanks. Lead on.